You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. You know, I've had the extreme joy of meeting a lot of people in my travels and in my writings, and and people who sometimes very different than me, sometimes have some overlap. The things that I've been kind of the most blown away with is when people from different realms take the ideas that we have here at Strong Towns and reinterpret them and share them in different ways. It's almost an artistry in a sense. And I came across this article on a website called Rhythm Changes. It's by a guy named Will Chernoff. And he basically reinterpreted or interpreted Strong Town's thinking for the music scene. And I was kind of blown away and thought, this is really beautiful. I wonder if this guy would be willing to chat with me. And guess what? (laughs) <laughs> he is willing to chat with me. So, Will, did I say your last name correctly, Chernoff? You sure did. Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> Welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. It's so nice to meet you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You are up in Canada, right? Yes, I'm in Vancouver on the West Coast. Oh, okay. I've been to Vancouver a few times. It's a gorgeous city. Um, yeah. Are you from Vancouver? Yeah, I grew up here in the Vancouver area in a city called New Westminster, and it's been a fascinating story of housing, transportation, and the whole nine yards over my lifetime. I'm in my mid-20s, so it's quite a wild place to live sometimes. There's a lot going on. Yes, absolutely. It is one of the more fascinating places. It's it's a little bit, from from a city design standpoint, it is... uh, a little like in Australia, you know, where it's kind of like off by itself and has evolved its own kind of culture and way of doing things. I've learned a lot from being in your part of the world. Interesting. Yeah. It's hard to see from an outside view when you've grown up here. But when I was a teenager and when I was thinking about what to do with my 20s and beyond, believe it or not, one of the first things that I wanted to do was to be a planner. That was kind of my desk job strategy as opposed to the music life that was pulling me in as I was starting to perform as a teenager. And I got so into it that I watched a bunch of CNU related content and that's where I discovered Strong Towns and you for the first time, probably 2014 or 2015. Wow. Yeah. And so yeah. I've been as The gamer kids would say, I've been lurking ever since. I've been following you silently and only recently have had the chance to get involved a little bit more by becoming a member, coming here and spreading the word about Strong Towns to more of my music friends who haven't heard of it yet. I really believe in the philosophy. I think there's a lot of it that is relevant to the arts world. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I want to get into the piece you wrote because it's really good, but I, I appreciate all that. It's funny because not many people know this, or maybe will even believe me at this point, because I'm I'm 48, so kind of a, a couple of decades ahead of you. Uh, but back when I was in school, teenager discerning, I played in bands all over the place, and that was going to be my career was music. I had no dreams of going into planning, and uh, yeah, my path. <laughs> I wound up at that fallback job that you're talking about. You know, mine was civil engineering. I had this uh, girl that I was crazy about, and I wanted to make sure that uh, her and her parents didn't think I was some, uh, you know, 
flippant musician out, uh, you know, just running around like I could be, I could be a stable guy that worked out because she's my wife now. So, <laughs> but this is the old, uh, the old joke. And I want to know if you know it too. It's uh, what do you call a guy surrounded by five musicians? I don't know, Chuck. What do you call him? As a drummer, <laughs> I was the percussionist. That's what I, so tell me a little bit about your music background. You're sitting here and people can't see this, but you're surrounded by uh, many, many instruments. Tell me about your, your background in music. <laughs> well, first of all, it's very cool that we took the opposite ends of the path. I think it's probably good that we both went the ways we did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> probably, yes. <laughs> uh, this is my home office. It's not staged. Uh, I have a bass guitar, an acoustic guitar, and a double bass around me. And the double bass was my first instrument. I think like many arts professionals in Canada, or even just appreciators of different music genres from pop all the way to what you might call non-commercial music. I'm a product of my public school music program because in high school, I got to spend a lot of time with fantastic music teachers and peers who were really enthusiastic about the music. And we tried to do everything we possibly could. We tried to go out and find whatever opportunity we could to perform when we were teenagers. And that was jazz music a lot of the time. And then you can kind of start working in the real world a little bit by playing in bands that play at events and do a bunch of covers and dance music and party music. So I got into that as well. But then I got into the nonprofit sector and I started working for an organization here called North Shore Celtic Ensemble. It's basically a violin school program that runs youth groups of kids who play music and actually tours them around. So I got to go to the UK, I got to go to China with them, I got to go to the rest of Canada with them, travel and play. I worked my way through that organization starting just as a bass player and, and I became the general manager most recently and then I even started a band that played folk music and toured Canadian folk festivals with the people whom I met at that organization. And when COVID came, I reevaluated all of that as everybody did. And then I ended up becoming a writer and making my own music on the side, but really exploring my local music community as a journalist a bit more for the first time because I couldn't tour. I left my position while I was deciding what to do next. And it's just been a wild two years since then. <laughs> Well, fantastic. That's a, that's a great story. I found your website and let's, let's make sure, I mean, we'll put a link in the, in the show stuff so people can get to it, but just it's um, rhythmchanges.ca. I'm a writer too, but I always spell rhythm wrong, even though I'm a <laughs> you're as a bass player, you're a rhythm player, right? So like you get a good, when you get in a good riff, so rhythmchanges.ca talk a little bit about, you said COVID but why writing? Writing is a, is a different art form. It's a different way of expressing yourself. What prompted you to take this step back? I realize like COVID was the catalyst, but, but why did the energy go into writing and not something else? Writing has always been my favorite medium, even while making music. And I do a podcast as well. And I even see the podcast as a form of being an author. And I know that in some sense, I'll always be a musician. Almost all my friends are musicians and it's my life. But as far as working primarily as an instrumentalist or a performer, I realized there was a ceiling on that for me and that at a certain point, it just wouldn't work for me anymore the same way it did when I was a teenager. And I think a lot of people have that reckoning and it's something that any musical exploring people can relate to. And at the end of the day, 
What's most important to me is that I'm what you described in the series of articles that influenced me so much that you published in May 2021 as an entrepreneur, but what I describe as an artist, where I'm a person with crazy ideas who doesn't know that he can fail. Yes. <laughs> and all I want to do is craft something unique that stands out. And I guess I learned that I can do that better as a writer. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. I like your writing. <laughs> Thanks. You know, the insights that you had on Strong Towns as I'm, as I'm reading this, it, it is a, I felt like, you know, you, you hear, I'll use a music analogy. You hear these people who will take a, a familiar piece. I'm a, a huge Beatles fan and you'll hear people redo Beatles music. And most of the time I'm like, ah, yeah, but every now and then you get someone who takes a Beatles song and reinterprets it. And it, it's not even the Beatles anymore. It's the same lyrics and it's the same melody, but it feels completely different, like a brand new work. And you're like, oh, that, I love the old song. I love this reinterpretation. And when I was reading the piece you wrote, Strong Town's Music, Strong Music Scenes, you call it a remix of, of my ideas. I got that same like tingly sensation, like, okay, wow, this is all very familiar to me, but it's been remixed and reworked with a different cadence and a different melody and a different you know emphasis in a way that I found really beautiful. Is this the only remix like this you've done or have you interpreted other, other works as well? Well, I think one's ability to write or make remix content like that depends a lot on the generosity of the original creator. It's actually a really acute problem in the big time professional music industry. There's a lot of copyright lawsuits in the music industry that make headlines because people are quite protective of their work and they see the opportunity to really capitalize on the restrictive nature of these laws and this kind of intellectual property because there's big money in songwriting and if they can clamp down on somebody else's opportunity to remix they will especially in the top tier where we're talking in the millions and billions of dollars of the music industry at the low level it's a little bit more laissez-faire a lot of people don't really care and so there's a bit of more corners that get cut but as a writer sometimes you don't know if the olive branch is being extended to you to do that and that's one of my favorite things about strong towns is you make it abundantly clear that yes this is something that you would appreciate if it happens and so any creator like me would have the green light to remix it i think that's an unbelievable part of the work that your movement does and i think that if you want to see more remixes in the world a lot of the creators who lead movements need to have that attitude. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that came across. I'm glad that comes across. It's, it is amazing to me how many people will contact us and say, Hey, can I copy this paragraph you wrote and use it in a newsletter? And I'm like, my gosh, just like write the whole, take the whole thing, put your name on it, pretend you wrote it. Like, I don't really care. We're yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you picked that up because I, I hear you. Well, there's that book, Steal Like an Artist, right? I mean, I, I, I will tell you sitting here that the part of my work that is more art, none of it is original. Like I would not look and say, this came from my soul sitting on a mountain in complete isolation from others, right? It, it all is a remix of other thoughts and other things that have, have, have merged in my brain. And I don't know. I mean, can you talk a little bit about 
artistry in that way. I mean, I feel like that is, to me, if you are a creator, you by default need to have some deference to other creative processes, right? Well, first I would say that um, Chuck, one weakness in my life has been that I often don't ask for permission. I often do things first. And so this is one area where that is actually helpful as opposed to maybe a problem. So I appreciate that about working in the creative arts. But I really come from the jazz tradition. And there's centuries of blues, Black American music, jazz music that informs this tradition in a very rich way that you can't ignore if you play the music today. So beyond the idea of just remixing a popular song, there's this legacy in jazz of building on what's come before. And when I studied jazz, I did study it for one year in university. And when I've worked in the gigging world of playing music as a jazz musician, you understand that there's so much there for you to work with. And it's to your advantage to understand that history as best you can. And if you try and go off on your own too much without honoring that history, you might come up with something cool, but it might be a little bit more hollow than if you'd really processed some of the legendary artists and some of the core material of the jazz tradition who came before you and then built your own voice on top of that. So the remix is almost a more modern idea than that. But I feel really grateful that jazz is the music tradition I learned. I suppose if you study classical music, you would learn this too in a different sort of way. But I came up with the idea that you follow what's come before you. And then when you become creative, you can do your own thing and you can search for your own voice in what you do. But you're always building on that rich legacy. Back in the days when I did music a lot, I was in a, a group here for like five, six years where, you know, we were playing two, three times a month, the full weekend gig. And, you know, a lot of it was covers and stuff. And so I'm not pretending it was real, you know, m musically uh, deep work, but, you know, we, we had our own style and I was in a seven piece band with a horn section and it was a lot of fun. We had a good time, but I found that, playing week after week after week, you would start to get really good at the things you were doing, but you didn't grow as much in terms of your style. And then we would have these stretches where we would take six weeks off or eight weeks off or what, like the schedule just worked out. And when I would come back, even though I hadn't been playing, I had just been listening to other music and like it, it letting my kind of thoughts uh, wander a little bit. When I would get back into it, there was this explosion of creativity that I would I would feel. And like the songs would feel different. I would actually play them differently. And I find that with writing too, like I will go, you know, I, like right now, I just got back from seven weeks on the road and I feel very, very creative. I can guarantee you three months from now when I haven't traveled very much, my writing will start to stagnate a little bit and feel formulaic in a sense. And you kind of need that break. I'm, I'm riffing on this because you've done this, I think, in the music sense, you know, obviously way, way deeper and way more than I have. Is this a thing unique to me? Is this a thing that you experience as well? How, how does that creative process of kind of surging and, and coming back, how does that work for you? 
Well, that sentence you said about, I just came back from seven weeks on the road, I think would be the envy of most musician friends I have. So it could have come straight out of their well, mouths too. It's not music though. It's giving <laughs> strong, you know, it's, it's my own art. It's, it's yeah. a giving a, a talk and all that. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I think the similarity though, is that it's a performance. You're performing. It's a performance. And when you have rest from that regimen of performance, that's when the creativity can happen. I often talk about this in the sense of, you know, with my students, because I teach private music lessons, I've always kind of done that a little bit along the way as one of the pieces of the puzzle that help pay the bills. And sometimes my students who want to attend music university, they'll ask me about, well, how did you think to play that if I played something that kind of required a lot of concentration in an arrangement with a bunch of other people or in a performance? And they're like, how did you think of what to play? And I try to emphasize something that I was taught, which is when you're performing, you can't think not in the same way that you want to when you are practicing or even when you're rehearsing the thinking has to have happened pre-performance and so the performing is an execution of what you've thought about if you try to think while you're performing you're in trouble it's going to be pretty obvious and it's going to be a bit of a deer in the headlights situation so when you have this seven weeks of performance or when i've had a summer where i've played at folk festivals every weekend you don't have the rest that you need to find the space to practice. You don't have the rest that you need to think. You don't have the rest for me. I want to read books all the time, read books and listen to podcasts. You don't have the rest to go and look for new ideas. You have to execute. And that's a tough balance for any self-employed person, for any entrepreneur, for any artist, balancing the execution with making space for yourself. I don't think I'm ever going to solve that, but it's something that I've learned a tremendous amount about through my mid-20s here and every year it seems like my learning on that front accelerates and I just hope I can keep talking to people who have gone through those experiences too and keep learning more about that. That's very helpful because I feel, you know, there, there's this legend and it might be myth of, you know, the Beatles in Hamburg and their, their days after days after days of, you know, 12-hour days of playing music straight for two months straight and how that kind of honed their stage presence and their technique and their, and to me, it's a little bit like uh, maybe a basketball team where you just learn how to play with the other people. Like I know at this part of the song, this person goes this way. And so I'm going to go this way and we're going to meet here in this other spot. And when you do it over and over again, but it does get a little mechanical at some point, right? Yeah. Because when you're in the studio too, you know, talking about the Beatles and going into the studio, that's a type of performance too, because you need to have prepared in advance of that. When you're in the studio, it's about execution. It's about getting down what you want to get down and expressing yourself. But the greatest artists in the history of modern popular music, especially as I can think of, find a way to have it both ways when they're in the studio. Not only are they creating performance, but they are also exploring ideas uh, as fully as if they were at rest. They find a way to thread the needle and do both those things at the same time. It's really hard to achieve. And it seems like a lot of the most fascinating albums are groups who have found a way to get into that state together for a period of time. I don't know if I ever have, like certainly in the moment on the albums that I've played on and when I was in my band and when I'm making my own music, doesn't always feel like that. It often feels pretty stressful and it does feel like it's just a performance that I need to execute and I hope that I've prepared well in advance. But the great artists find a way to do that and writing for me seems to be one of the few ways that I'm maybe catching that feeling and 
learning what it feels like firsthand for the first time. When I'm writing, and at this point, I'm publishing maybe four times a week only, kind of just one article per oh, day, man, so nowhere great, near that's the Strong Towns <laughs> volume of content. But obviously, I'm just a one-man shop. But I try to approach it when I'm writing like I'm in the studio, and I'm looking for that duality of I'm producing something that's a bit of a performance, but at the same time, I'm also searching and I'm looking for something new. Writing has that same effect on me. I, I will say this, and, and maybe I'll pause here for you to either affirm or not. There have been moments in my life where I've been playing music that have been electric, where I just feel really deeply connected. There's this connection that you have with the people that you're playing music with that just electrifies you because of the rhythm and the you know the way it all comes together. You're nodding your head. So <laughs> when I write, it's a very different feeling because it's it's on my own, right? But it's the only other thing that I've done, you know, in that in this kind of volume way, where when you get in a flow, it has that same kind of electric feeling. I'm a late night writer and I will start writing. And I've had times when I looked at my clock and it was four in the morning. And I thought, what, what just happened? Like, I just, I was like transported and, you know, 3000 words spilled out. And now all of a sudden it's almost time to get up. You have that feeling when you do music and have you, you know, experienced that to a degree with writing? Yeah, I would say it's a similar concept that underwrites feeling that way in either one. I am absolutely not a late night writer. I can't do anything late at night except maybe attend a show or maybe perform if I have to. When I have that feeling, Chuck, it's when I get up super early in the morning and I'm excited to be awake and I haven't even had coffee yet. I don't know how that happens, but it's probably because of writing if I'm excited to write about something. But I think it's something like the joy of being your own audience for a moment and feeling that way. Because obviously you can feel that way when you're in the audience and you're reading something that you really love or when you're attending a concert by someone you really love. And we're all our own audiences too. And we have to produce things that speak to what we need to see in the world. And when I started writing in 2020, I was just kind of doing it on a sub stack. I just started that way for the best ease of use. And then it became its own website. And then I added the podcast the following year too. I was just creating something that I wanted to see out there. And when I was coming up as a teenager in my early 20s, I would have wanted to read or support or be part of. That wasn't there at the time. So I was my own audience when I was writing initially. And I still am when there's something that I produce that really represents what I want to see out there. I have that moment of being my own number one fan just for a second on that one thing. And hopefully I can catch that and enjoy it and be like, yes, this is actually something that I want to see out there. And then when you see other people's things who really resonate with what you're doing, it becomes more special too, because you feel like you're meeting somewhere, you both have something to offer. So I think that's why I can get excited that way, either by writing or by playing music. And when I see my friends perform and I'm amazed by what they do, I hope that they're feeling that same satisfaction along the way when they're doing it too. Yeah, that's amazing. I was really excited to chat with you because, you know, like my studio right now is in an art center and I'm the geeky writer who does video stuff, but there's people around here doing, you know, pottery and painting and all these other things and then music. 
And there've been a couple of times I've been invited to sit down with people and, and jam a little bit and it's fun, but the endurance is not there anymore. You know, I used to be able to play four hour gigs and now I'll play three songs on a, on a kit and I'm like, Oh, my arms are going to fall off. But it's fun how that, that feeling of being connected by, and maybe it's a rhythm thing. I don't, I think other musicians get this too, obviously, but as a rhythm person, I think you could appreciate that a good a good rhythm, a good, like steady base to this thing. And having other people build on that is just a really, it's a deep feeling, you know, I miss it. I miss it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. We are partners in rhythm here. We're both searching for that feeling bass and drums You're You're always listening to what else is going on around you. And you, you really have a full kind of concept and you're trying to figure out how you can best play that supporting role, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I, I'm, I'm happy for you too, that you enjoy writing enough to four times a week. When, when I started writing Strong Towns, my, my commitment was three days a week. Um, I'm now writing two. Uh, when I travel, it becomes less. I miss the days when I didn't have an editor and I didn't have, <laughs> I love the team here and they do great work and they're amazing to have and we're better because of it. But there is a certain, yeah, like freedom of sitting down and saying, I'm, I'm going to explore this idea and I'm deeply passionate about exploring it and just letting stuff pour forth, you know, in, in print. I'm seeing you, that, that's got to be where you're at. I'm a little envious. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's funny because when I was discovering Strong Towns in 2014, 2015, you know, I would uh, watch you or I would read you and then I would watch, you know, Andres Duani, et cetera, right? And not just bikes is an interesting counterpoint to this, but if you just focus back on that time, you know, Andres, what he says is so articulate, right? But I felt like what you were saying at that time, it had this fire, you know, and it's like, it's like when you're comparing two of your favorite artists and you're like, oh, well, this band does this really well, but this band makes me feel this way. And it's like, you had this attitude that Strong Towns was bringing that was so fun to me as a teenager. And it's something that I think is still there, even as it's scaled up. And that's, you know, that's worthy of a lot of respect. Thank you. I told this to someone once because they were asking me, how do you become a, a good public speaker? And I said, well, a lot of my, like way before I started Strong Towns and I was working in cities around here and I was, I was sharing ideas, was listening to Andres, walking around and then just mimicking how he would say things. It was, you said this correctly, it's a performance when you're giving a talk. I stand in front of a group and I talk for an hour. That is a performance. The way that I learned how to do that was listening to other people and mimicking what they would say, like literally trying to say the exact same thing in the exact same way. And then over time, it morphed into my words and my way of doing it. But I, I start with them. That's a little bit of music creative process too, right? Yeah. I want to dip my feet right in the ocean here when you've brought that up, because this has interesting implications. You know, if you think about music education or arts education or how you develop the next generation of a scene, we have traditional apparatus for music education. We have these college programs that people go to, and there's a lot of great things about them. Their primary purpose of them is certainly not to churn out professional musicians. That can't be the standard for music education or really any arts or humanities education. I think that's pretty clear to all sides. It's about something else, those programs. It's almost about 
developing appreciation and participation in that art form or that discipline. It's certainly not a vocational training thing. So I guess the question is, well, if that's something that you're entertaining the idea of doing that as your vocation, well, where do you go? What do you do to learn how that is done? And so we need places locally where you can access the people who are doing it right now and you can engage with them. And I'm lucky to have had one or two venues over the last 10 years where that's been accessible to me. And I've tried to spend as much time at those venues when I was a young instrumentalist learning as I could. And now that I'm a music journalist, I try to spend as much time at them now to figure out what's going on and to talk to the people who are really doing it day to day. But if you have challenges cultivating those kinds of spaces, it's really not accessible to that many people or people don't even know that the places exist. So that's why I landed on the media side, I think, because I thought that was the bottleneck here in Vancouver, at least, is that Vancouver has always had this reputation of draconian bylaws that have made entertainment inaccessible or the no fun city nickname, especially in the generation before me. And, and even in my young years, I've seen a lot of venues come and go. And with the housing challenges in Vancouver, it's always a question about how you keep these spaces alive. And that's where the Strong Towns movement really has been a source of inspiration for me. But the best way I could understand to participate in that was by trying to cover what was going on and make an access point for people to learn more about it and to participate in it. It's the bottleneck for sure in terms of if you want to be an artist, where do you go to learn about it? If you want to really enjoy the people making music around you and not just listen to pop music, which is fine, but I really do believe that the, the the true route to satisfaction as a fan of the arts is with the people around you in your backyard. It can't just be about listening to global music recordings. It has to be it there has to be a promise of face to face. And that's a land use problem. It's a development problem and it's like a local economy problem. So there's a lot there, but it's something that because I had both the inspiration of wanting to be a planner at one point and then ending up as a musician, I've always paid attention to it. Yeah. Well, this is a good segue to the article you wrote. I'm going to give a little bit of a, this might seem like a sidebar, but I think you'll, you'll hang with me on this. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers. You read this book, you're familiar yeah. with. So the first chapter is about hockey players and how, you know, most professional hockey players are born in January, February, March. And you're like, well, that's really weird. Why is that? And you realize over the course of the chapter that when they're very young, the kids that are born in January are 11 months older than the kids born in December. And a kid that's 11 months older at age five is a lot bigger and a lot stronger than, than the, the kid born in December. And so they tend to be the kids that dominate in the hockey game. Because they dominate, they tend to get more attention, more affirmation. Uh, it reflects through the entire uh, upbringing of the kid. And you wind up with this high proportion of people born in the beginning of the year becoming better hockey players. And I found that all like interesting. That was, very, that was a very interesting insight. But then Malcolm Gladwell said this thing that has haunted me, just haunted me. And he's like, how, how many more great hockey players would we have if we 
you know, had two leagues, one of kids that were the first half of the year and one of the leagues that were the second half of the year. How many more great hockey players would we have if this system were set up differently so that every great hockey player had a chance to be, in a sense, nurtured from the womb, you know, to be a great hockey player. And it didn't haunt me because I love hockey. I'm from Minnesota. You know, you're from Canada. I'm sure you have a certain amount of respect for hockey. I've never played and it's not my sport, but I, I get it. But I started looking at music and I started looking at art and things that I love and things that I deeply appreciate and recognize that, you know, the artists that I love, if you backtrack their story, it's like a one in a million story, right? What if it were a one in a hundred thousand story? Would we have 10 times more brilliant people there? And what if we could make it a one in 10,000 story or a one in 5,000 story? It seems a little bit like your riff off of my stuff is kind of getting at that, that, you know, the way we've structured venues and uh, performance spaces, and even the process of going from, I'm a armchair musician to I'm playing with others to I'm playing gigs I get paid to I've got a recording contract or I'm touring around. It's such a system that doesn't really, it kind of suppresses genius and brilliance in a way that I, I find kind of sad, right? There's got to be all these people who are singing like church funerals who should be at Carnegie Hall. So go, go ahead and, and, and respond to that. Well, the music industry are capital allocators. That's all they are. So they'll suppress that to the same extent that any capital allocators will have when they come in with the mindset of financial return and the expectation of growth in a certain way. The music industry through my life has been very tumultuous. Revenue briefly peaked in 1999. This is total recorded music revenue, I think at around 15 billion. And then it basically went through a 15 year Great Depression. It had a drawdown of maybe more than two thirds from 15 all the way down to 5 billion as the internet disrupted the music industry. And actually, according to the IFPI, which is an organization that reports on this, last year it surpassed the peak for the first time. So that streaming driving a lot more recorded music revenue. So we're back above the pre digital disruption recorded music era. So the music industry is very happy right now on the return that they're getting, especially on the things they've invested in in the mid 2000s. That's completely disconnected from anything that's going on in any individual city. And that drives a lot of artists frustration where they're upset that somebody else is making money, but they can't figure out a way to improve the situation in their own city. And I guess it's a bit of a heterodox idea that kind of comes from a different perspective than the music industry. But I've always believed that the music scene can and should be a place to grow wealth. I don't think that gets a lot of shine because I think a lot of local artist types, frankly, are not business types and they're not inclined to think about things that way, even if they would wish for that outcome. There's not often a local leader who will move things in that direction. And I'm lucky that in Vancouver jazz here, there are some people in our jazz scene who are very business-minded and who are really creating opportunities for people. I wish that for all local music communities and I'm not sure how it's done, but the idea that a music scene is another type of small community that deserves to have a local apparatus, that deserves to have economic gardening and that deserves to find its own way 
and to not have an outside force with a capital allocation mindset pumping wealth through it is important to me. I think it's important for other people too. And I'm looking to have that conversation and see what other people think about that. I, I thought the stuff you wrote about economic gardening was such a great remix, reinterpretation of the economic gardening stuff from, from Chris Gibbons and, and the whole economic gardening work that they've done. This idea of, in a business sense, stage one, stage two, stage three companies, and how, you know, for people who are not familiar with this, in economic gardening, a stage one company is a startup, or it's a business that is just going to remain uh, local, you know, a single single uh, entrepreneur or a you know, little coffee shop that's never going to expand. And these are great. Like, we need these. These are wonderful places. There's also stage three then, which is like the big corporations and the places with all the capital. And if you go back to the coffee shop analogy, it's the little coffee shop versus the, um, you know, the Starbucks that comes in. Starbucks would be a stage three. But there's this whole realm of stage two that tends to be lacking economically in most markets. Those are the places that employ a lot of people. Those are the places that bring capital into the community and tend to allocate them because they start to use things like local accountants and local advertisers and local marketing people and local attorneys. They're the places that actually provide greater opportunity in a community. You, you remix this, and I hadn't thought about this until you wrote it down, how, and I'm going to paraphrase, and then you elaborate. There's obviously venues for the one in a million artists that, that make it big. And we cheer for American Idol because it seems to take, you know, the everyday person and propels them to stardom, but in such a, you know, weird way. There's also a lot of venues for musicians to do things in a startup way, a stage one. It, maybe it is a church funeral, or maybe it is a, a little coffee shop where you can play a half hour gig unpaid. There's not really the middle there. And I'm gonna I'm gonna categorize the middle as the place that a musician could make a living working as a good musician. Can you talk a little bit about that insight that you had? And I want particularly to get to what we're missing out on and what we're losing as communities by not having that stage two presence. Yeah, so I scaled down the numbers for my remix for sure. The numbers are smaller than you would think, especially in Canadian music. And I chose for stage two, it's the six-figure revenue area, six-figure revenue. So 100,000 to 1 million in, in revenue, not even profit. That's where the rarity is. And obviously, my stage three starts at a million dollars. So that's not even that large of an enterprise at that point. But that's where I drew the three-stage boundaries was below 100K in revenue and then up to a million and then beyond. Because I think if you have, certainly in Canada, the way... The music industry has been institutionalized in a way with a lot of government support and uh, kind of recurring public funding. If you have over a million in revenue, you're going to become a part of that institution pretty fast. So at that point, you are established. You are stage three in a way at our small scale. But in that 100,000 to a million, it's very turbulent and there's not a lot of obvious routes you can take you can follow about how that should be navigated. That's where I'm really, really curious. I'm stage one. I'm below that line in terms of what I'm doing personally. And I always have been in everything I've been a part of. I suppose when I worked for the nonprofit, the budget was over 100,000 when I was working there. But 
it's different sort of thing. And uh, I didn't throw my weight around in that stage too. I don't really know what that feels like yet, but I do know people who do, even in non-commercial genres like jazz, you know, you have an independent record label that gets government support, but does big projects and even brings in international artists and presents at festivals and records a lot of albums and gets them heard. That's a stage two business. And I don't know how many independent jazz record labels are there in Canada, probably like five that are in, in the entire country that are in that stage too. And I bet there's not even that many more of them in America, but there's one passage that I actually took note of here from that article that I wanted to really drop in here at the right time. And I think this is where this relates to it. So I'm going to quote myself here briefly on this. Theme. Please do it. Big budget music production is not an asset. The copyright is an asset, but spending lots of money to make recordings is a long-term liability, one that never goes away if you're a major label artist. You don't need more big budget music projects. The prosperous artist starts out working at zero cost, only adding expenses when they become part of a profitable process. This is a radical idea in the arts industry. It's never even been possible before until you could build an audience digitally at zero to low cost. The music industry is not used to thinking this way whatsoever. And we need to have a public conversation with the artists in our community about how this can be done because the music industry model is all about what you call the capital flow as opposed to the stock. It's all about pumping money through the system. Who knows where it ends up? It gets taken out of the system by service people who need to spend it on just staying afloat themselves, that investment doesn't translate into anything long-term when you play at the professional music industry level. But you can play at a different level now, and it's this stage two. And when I see somebody doing this, I'm very curious about how it's done. It's a new thing, and it's what I'm obsessed with. I'm trying to find all the people in Canada in the creative music world who do this. And honestly, one of the things about Rhythm Changes is that it is my ticket to meeting these people. And I just approached them with full curiosity. I really respect what they do. I want to know how they think they can onboard more artists in their cities from stage one to stage two. That's beyond my pay grade personally. I don't know how that's done, but that's the thing I'm most curious about. Let me ask you this about what you just said. And let me give you an analogy and see if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly. Here in my hometown of Brainerd, you know, small place, with the school district just spent, and we as voters approved, uh, something like 15 million, 20 million. I can't remember. It was, a, it, was a, it was a significant number for a new performing arts center. It's attached to the high school. It's a very nice facility, but we've been using it now. And there's a state grant for theater to come in. There's a state grant for uh, bands and musicians to come in. And we've been able to get some very like high quality, high class performances here in our little place. Uh, we have a state program for the arts that supports the arts and I'm a small government kind of person, but at the very local level, I really like this. And I think Minnesotans generally like it. It's a popular program. And wow, we've had some great plays here. And wow, we've had some great musicians here. You know, the people who are in that 
program and in that world. And the people who, you know, run the Performing Arts Center and have the overhead budget that is in the six plus figures a year and have, you know, to get a certain number of things come through to justify their salary and the, the, the people who are going to clean the facility and all this, there's a certain amount of like overhead that comes along with that, that keeps them from, how do I want to put it? Having that a hundred different smaller bands come through or a bunch of different like local actors come through and do things. It only works at a certain scale. And there's a huge gap between the scale of the person who is good, but not there yet. And the scale of the people who would get the money to do that. And that it's that gap in the middle that it seems to me, we lose so much of our momentum in the arts. Am I interpreting what you're saying correctly? Yeah, you're talking about small bats. That's what I'm thinking small of bats when you say that. Is, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It's hard to do small bats when you take public funding. I'm grateful to be a part of some international communities that revolve around jazz music because the jazz musicians in the world definitely try to find each other and help each other and talk to each other. Being from Canada, I'm often asked about Canada's public arts funding in the sense of, oh, your government is very generous with how they fund the arts. And on one hand, that's factually true. I've taken some small public funding to do some projects as an artist myself. On the other hand, I'm very skeptical of the system because I think it prioritizes the wrong milestones to try and figure out who needs funding, especially when it comes to how much relative funding people get. I think perhaps this system as it stands today sometimes tends to fund things that run at a loss and that don't contribute to capital stock whatsoever. I think that's probably to the detriment of the system because I think when the system gets more funding into it and more public funding gets distributed, I think the growth in how much public funding goes out to arts institutions in Canada is coming from giving more money to loss-making projects because of certain cultural impact or social capital that they may have which is great, but what you're not getting is a reward to a lot of these kind of stage two businesses that started out with profitability with their local community's needs in mind and creating a positive feedback around that. I'm skeptical that a lot of this public funding is going to those kind of businesses and I don't know who's helping them. I imagine from some of the conversations I've had with independent record labels or service providers or ad hoc festivals that people decide to run that a lot of these organizations feel a little isolated and they don't really know what their place is in the Canadian arts ecosystem because of that. And I think that the real institutions that I've encountered as an artist in this country, I don't know to what extent they have time to think about small bets because I think they have to think about how to keep their process running. And unfortunately, their process is not an economic net positive. And, you know, that's a high bar. I definitely don't fault them for that. But if I'm coming at this from the strong town's perspective, I think I have to be a little skeptical of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant set of insights. At the end of your piece, you kind of remix the Strongtown's four-step process. I find it fascinating when people take this thing, which is such a simple... When I first wrote this out, 
it was an answering to someone's question, like, what should we do? And, and they were, you know, do more public input in this process and process, process, process and grant and all this. And I'm like, no, just simplify it down to this. And for some reason, I want to let you explain, like this resonates with you too. And I'm, I'm just fascinated that, you know, I've seen so many people now come back with this as like, this is what we should do. And, you know, whether it is in business, uh, computer programming, uh, city development, trying to make your local church group better. I hear you now talking about it in the music scene. You know, we, we try to observe what the problem is. We ask what we can do. We, we do that thing and we repeat. How do you interpret this and, and why does this resonate with you? I run a podcast every week where I interview an artist in the community. And one of the things that's important to me in doing this podcast is I don't expect any individual artist to try and speak for the entire community at once. I would love it if they can just speak to what they are doing and what they are feeling today and what they see. And I get a little worried that if there aren't conversations happening with these kinds of people on the regular, the one time that they pop up and they get some exposure in the media or in the public eye or when they step into the conversation, a given artist or even a given entrepreneur, somebody who's running an independent record label or somebody who is booking music at a venue, they feel like they have to speak for the entire music scene. I think the conversation gets pretty blunted at that point. And I think it's quite hard to get to individual people's needs and to get to solutions that you can implement quickly and easily and without spending too much money when there's that lack of a sustained conversation. And that's what drives me to write as much as I can and what drives me to podcast as much as I can and to listen to the people who have come before me, to the people in the generations up from me who've seen what they've seen, talk to them as regularly as I can because I don't want them to feel like, oh, this is my one chance to get the message out for the entire Canadian music community, because that's that's really not going to be that interesting to anybody. So I want to start a conversation. I want to keep it going. <laughs> that's a great insight, because I do think in the realm of like city planning, what we want is we want the avatar that affirms I'm going to speak now as like a city planner. We want the avatar that affirms our worldview that can also speak for everybody so that we don't have to do the work of trying to understand all that complexity. And I'm hearing you say that in the music scene, there's kind of the same, maybe the same institutional desire, but, you know, artists are, I mean, artists by definition, I mean, I feel like humans by definition are all different, but artists in particular, I mean, isn't that the point? (laughs) Right? Like if we just needed Xerox copies of everything, we wouldn't need artistry, right? Yeah. So to be a little bit more specific, I often find that there's a lot of conversations now. I mean, there's a thing called the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, UMAW, that's advocating for a certain set of demands from like a music labor political perspective, mostly in America. And there's other kinds of uh, music political discussions that happen on Twitter and in the real world too, but especially in the media. I often find that comes from a root feeling of feeling like you're not heard. And so you have to make your demands really big and really um, sweeping. And I know that doesn't represent all artists. It it will definitely represent the views of some, but 
uh, if you want that four-step loop where you can really improve your community, I think you really have to shrink the scale of the conversation and increase the frequency. And so that's why I would love to see a new kind of local music journalism in a way. Obviously, a new kind of local news in general is a big topic right now, but at least on the side of the arts where it seems like the stakes are a little bit lower, uh, increasing the frequency of those conversations with the people around you is paramount to me because otherwise, when you give them a chance to talk, it's going to be like somebody speaking at a city council meeting and airing all their grievances at once, you know, which is like, there's a place for that if that's what's necessary, but we can do better than that. We can listen to these people more often and we can get more specific about what they need. Yeah. Will, it has been such a delight to talk to you, to meet you. And I, I hope we stay in touch. I hope that um, you continue to do what you're doing. I certainly will follow and uh, I hope others listening to as well. What's the best place to follow you and, and your work? Well, my website is rhythmchanges.ca because I'm in Canada, of course, but I want to throw in one thing at the end here, Chuck. And thank you so much for having me. I hope we get to play music someday. I, I hope would the stars love, align. love that. <laughs> I don't know who else is going to be in the band. We would have to figure that out. But <laughs> An hour of rhythm is always fine to me. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I will throw this in. My favorite episode ever on the Strong Towns podcast is from June 2020, and it's called Strip Mall. And the intro to that one really hit me hard where you were talking about, I think it was a municipality building a second strip mall after one had already kind of failed. There is a platform called Bandcamp where musicians sell music independently at bandcamp.com. And after I listened to that episode, I actually composed an instrumental piece of music and I titled it Chuck's Strip Mall. I heard and this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Someone anybody said this to me. That was you. Anybody can find it by going to bandcamp.com and searching for Chuck Strip Mall by William Chernoff. But that is a sidebar. That's just a humorous sidebar in tribute to a particular episode of this show. But you can find me writing at rhythmchanges.ca. And uh, if you check out Ch Chuck Strip Mall, definitely drop me a line. How about this? How about for our outro music today, we do Chuck Strip Mall. Is that, <laughs> do, we have your permission to do that? <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, okay. Will yeah. Chernoff. Thank you for your time. Uh, you take care. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Chuck. Same to you. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care.
Thank mm-hmm. you.